0: Uh, In 2019, my wife and I had the pleasure of visiting Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a cool place. There's a number of different sites to see. You can walk up to the gate of Shepherd's Field, also known as Boaz's Field, where they say that Ruth met Boaz. Um, But you can also go to the church in the the nativity, the traditional site that is believed to be Jesus' birthplace. Now, to get into the church of nativity, you have to go through the door of humility, which is altogether four feet tall and two feet wide. And so, you know, I'm not a, uh, I might be a wide guy, but I'm not a uh, very tall guy, so the four feet tall is not much of a stooping, but to get through a two foot wide door, you have to walk in virtually like this. And so a, a giant would have a very hard time getting through this door. Now that's not bad architecture, it's very intentional. The reason they made the door small and narrow was so that everyone, prince or pauper, would have to become the size of a child to enter in. And so, the door symbolizes the fact that all must humble themselves if they are to approach Jesus. All must stoop. All must condescend. And I think that door of humility to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem serves as an appropriate illustration for how one enters the kingdom. Do you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, turn and become like children. The doorway to the kingdom is small. It's child-sized, in fact. And only those who become humble like children may enter in. In Matthew 19, verses 13 through 26, we see this truth played out in the contrast between the children who come to Jesus and the rich young man who walks away from him. Far too often, we treat these two stories as completely separate and having nothing to do with one another. But I think if you read the story of the children, no, it's not just a good reason for why you should have children's church. If you read this in context of the rich young man who walks away from Jesus, then you begin to see the clear message of this unit of text that goes together. The kingdom of heaven is for children, while the rich enter it with only great difficulty. We'll define here in just a minute what it means to be rich, just to give you a tip-off. It doesn't have anything to do with how much money you have in your bank account, okay? So, Just to state the point again, the kingdom of heaven is for children, while the rich enter it with only great difficulty. All must bow. All must become child-sized. Okay. All must become like children to get into the door of the kingdom. There is no other way. Now, after the Pharisee's testing, Matthew tells us, "...then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray." The description of children being brought to Jesus serves as a startling contrast to all the rejection we've seen. We've seen the religious elite coming to Jesus. They should be the ones that are groveling and are bowing and are repenting and are coming to him. Instead, they are rejecting, acting like they're know-it-alls, this can't be the one. And yet it's children who are given sight of the Messiah. It's children who are given an understanding of who he is. And it's yet another reminder that God has made the great truths of the kingdom known to the little children, not to the wise and the understanding, not to the adults. My friends, let me just tell you this right now. If you think of yourself as a grown-up in Christ, you are thinking of yourself wrongly. The kingdom of God is the one place that being an adult and being a grown-up is a bad thing. And we'll see why here in just a minute. These children illustrate what everyone needs, but few understand. They come to Jesus as their intercessor, as the one who can bless them. As seen in their motivation in coming to Jesus, they want him to come and lay hands on them and pray for them. What does all that symbolize? Well, laying hands on someone is a priestly act to demonstrate a mediation to God, in a sense. It's intercession. It's intercession when a priest lays his hand on someone in the temple and then prays for them it's a form of blessing it's a symbolic blessing that this priest has brought this person before the presence of god and that they are blessed because of this intercession so these children come to jesus knowing that they need whatever that is they need him to intercede they need him if they are they need his mediation if they are going to have blessing In the presence of God. He is the stand between. He is the stand in the middle of person. He's the mediator. And I think these children then model the proper posture of humility in relation to Jesus. In their neediness. In their desire. In their humility for Jesus. Now the fact that children. Small ones. Four foot tall ones become the models of humility is significant, especially when we remember that children enjoyed no special status. They were to be seen but not heard. Uh, same rule in our house, but not really. We love our kids. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work out for us. But these humble little children become the paradigms of the kingdom citizens that are great. Not the Pharisees, not the kings, not King Herod, Not Caesar in Rome, but children. Just just think of that fact. It's it's the nursery, the ones in the nursery, that are the paradigms of what a great kingdom citizen looks like. My friends, we've got to flip our minds upside down sometimes. We love our independence. We love our self-sufficiency. We love listing out all the things. My goodness, you want to get on my bad side? Suggest I'm incompetent. I'm an adult man. Dang it. (laughs) Don't you ever tell me that I'm incompetent. But in the kingdom of heaven, we come with a totally different posture. We come knowing, yes, we're incompetent. Yes, we're insufficient. Yes, we're weak. We come with this understanding that we are just simply not enough. We are not good enough in and of ourselves, that we need someone else. We come with a dependence and a self-made, self-understood weakness. And we enjoy that weakness because strength isn't found in us. It is found in someone stronger than us. That's the kind of mindset that we're supposed to have. I just, I think it's amazing that when Jesus goes out in public, look at who he interacts with. My friends, if I get invited to public meetings... My natural temptation is to rub shoulders with the important people. I'm sure you guys share that natural inclination, right? I mean, you go to a, to a party and the county judge is going to be there, probably going to forget I'm your pastor and go, go straight to the county judge, right? I mean, that's the big important. We, we like the local celebrities. We like rubbing shoulders with the local politicians, with leaders, with these people that we see higher ups, and we tend to bypass the lesser important people. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't go, hold on, disciples, there's the Pharisees. And he doesn't doesn't do that. No, he sees the children first. And that's where his heart is drawn to. Two things stick out. Jesus' heart is for little ones. For weak ones, for broken ones, for sinful ones. That's where Jesus' heart is naturally drawn. When Jesus sees someone that is sinful, when Jesus sees someone that is broken, when Jesus sees someone that is weak, his heart is drawn to them. He doesn't gather to himself all these strong, self-sufficient, perfect, self-righteous people to himself. If anything, he is made sick by that. Because he knows it's not true. Jesus is drawn to weak ones. And so if Jesus is drawn to weak ones, why why do we not more often just confess, I'm weak? If that's what's going to draw Jesus' heart to me even more, then might as well confess my weakness. Might as well confess my brokenness. Might as well confess my insufficiency. Because Jesus' heart is drawn to people that are broken like me.
1: That's the first thing that we see. He wasn't making time for all the big important people. He was making time
0: for the snotty-nosed children of Israel. My friends, the disciples had big issues with this. Jesus has got far more important things to do than to hang out with your snot-nosed kid. So they began rebuking the people. Keep them away, keep them away, keep them away. They, they, in their paradigm, Jesus deserves the pulpit. Don't bother him about the nursery. Jesus deserves to do the important things. Don't bother him with the diapers. But Jesus is saying, no, that's not my heart. My heart is for kids. My heart is for children. It's a subtle detail. But the detail is that Jesus does not want them to be hindered from coming to him. He wants them to have free access to himself. They try to rebuke the people from bringing the kids to him, and Jesus rebukes them. Do not hinder them. The king demands that the palace door remains open for kids, for children, for little ones. Now, the second truth that it shows us um, is, is in this interaction with, his, with, his, uh, with these children that are there, that Jesus wants the door to the palace to remain open. Why? Because the kingdom is theirs. For to such as these belong the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the gates of the kingdom are to remain open because it's theirs. Don't keep them out of what's theirs. These little ones have the kingdom. So don't prevent them. They have free access. When these children come to have Jesus' blessing, guess what? He gives them the desire of their heart. He blesses them. Because they come. I just I would have loved to seen it. Just, just all these people coming with their kids, coming to Jesus, knowing that they need some kind of intercessory blessing from him. They may not know the big, perfect picture of who he is. All they know is they see what they see, and they need him. And so they're running, and then disciples coming, and broad-shouldered disciples, get back, kids. You know, just trying to scare them away. And then suddenly Jesus is saying, what in the heck are you guys doing? Move out of the way and let my important kingdom citizens in. Man, if I were a child, I'd just be walking right past Peter saying, take that, Peter. You know, either way. But just to get the desire of their heart, they want Jesus, and he gives them Jesus. Why? Because that's who they're looking for. My friends, all get what they chase.
1: I just want to help you understand something. You are all pursuing something. And you're in a head-bent
0: trajectory to what you want. Everyone gets
1: what they want in the end. Not everyone likes it. Everyone gets what they want in the end. Children wanted
0: Jesus. They chased after Jesus. And they got Jesus. My friends, you may be chasing after something else if you are chasing after something else, you're not going to accidentally run into Jesus. You're going to get what you're chasing after. The only way to have Jesus is to stop the pursuit for other things and to turn and be like the children and run in the right direction, which is back to Jesus. So we who desire to enter the kingdom must view humility. We must view weakness. We must view trust. We have to stop with all the power talk I mean, this, this whole season has displayed in us a craving to retain power. We have to stop with all that. That's not childish talk. That's adultish talk. Who's in control? Who's in charge? Who's in power? Who's going to tell who what to do? That is, that is absolutely obscene in the kingdom of God. That is not what children discuss. Children discuss weakness. Trust and humility. Those things are not just a nicety to have as a child of God. That is a necessity, according to Jesus. If you are to enter into the kingdom of God, you cannot do it as a powerful, prideful overlord of somebody else. You simply can't. You have to make yourself like a child. Now, immediately following Jesus' encounter with the children, here comes the contrast. Contrast. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? The proximity of this man's coming to Jesus is meant to serve as that contrast. You have the children, and then against that, you have this backdrop of this man. And so we're going to appreciate the children more, but we're also going to mourn over this man here in just a minute. The differences can be seen between the children and this man in just the very first verse. First, the children and the man have completely different views of Jesus. The children approach Jesus knowing that they need his intercession, knowing that his hand brings blessing and brings them into the presence of God, that this hand that they are reaching out for is going to be their mediating hand, the one that brings them powerfully before God. This man, however, comes to Jesus as teacher. Now We, we bypass some of these. We, we, we miss over, we overlook, um, we pass over. Some of these subtle details sometimes, but if you flip through Matthew's gospel, the scribes, the Pharisees, this rich young man, the Herodians, what they all have in common? They all don't believe in Jesus, they all don't see him as their Savior, and they all call him teacher. No one that approaches Jesus saying, hey, teacher, is coming in a heart of faith in Matthew's gospel. So from the very beginning, he doesn't see Jesus as Lord. He's just teacher, just a rabbi, just someone that he's to come to, and uh, he, he, has, he has important questions to ask, but he's not his Lord. On the contrast, you see people like the blind man, the uh, Roman centuri- centurion, the leper, the Canaanite woman, all these people refer to him as either Lord or Son of David. The powerful people in Matthew's gospel see him as only a teacher. They cannot condescend. He's an equal. Or a little less. But to a Canaanite woman, he is Lord. He is royalty. He is king. So even from that subtle detail, we know, just from Matthew tipping us off, that this man is not approaching Jesus in faith. He's approaching Jesus in a totally different motive. Second, The children came to Jesus because of what only he could do for them. They didn't come saying, hey, Jesus, do you mind if we use your hand so we can bring about our own blessings? They don't come to him like that. They come to him knowing that he must do something for them. This man, on the other hand, comes saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you hear the difference in the posture? One comes to Jesus knowing that only he can work. Blessing, mediation, intercession before God comes through one being. He must do it. I can do nothing in my salvation. I can do nothing. I must humble and come to him knowing that he alone can do it. It is not my work to come into the presence of God. This man, on the other hand, comes. What good thing
1: must I do to earn it for myself. Totally different posture. But I think as we look at just that first sentence, we see there is a difference. Just because
0: you come to Jesus, just because you approach Jesus, just because you're in
1: proximity to Jesus, doesn't mean you're in the kingdom of God. My greatest fear is to have so many people that we pastor and so many people in the church that convince themselves that proximity, that a nominal, near relationship with Jesus is enough. It wasn't enough for the rich young man. And it's not enough for you. Proximity to
0: Jesus doesn't mean salvation. Those who are saved, those who enter into the kingdom, are those who have the right, humble, child-sized, childlike heart. That is who the kingdom is for. Children are the important citizens of the kingdom. And unless you're like them, you simply cannot have Jesus. The man was seeking a good thing, but not necessarily the goodness of Jesus himself. Jesus addresses this in the very next verse. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Do you see what he does? Uh, this is a little bit different than Mark's version of the story. Mark, uh, in Mark's version of the story, if you were to flip over there in Mark 10, the rich young man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. And then Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So at least in Mark's version of the story, Jesus is addressing the man's understanding of who Jesus is. The man thinks he's just a good teacher, And Jesus is saying, if I'm really as good as you say that you are, then I'm God. That's essentially what he's doing. Okay? In Matthew's version, what he's doing is he's addressing the fact that the man wants a good thing, but he's missed that good is not a thing, it's a person. He wants some good thing, but he's missed the fact that he needs the good one, the good Jesus. That's who's good. There's only one who is good. You're asking about some good thing. And yet there's only one who is good. In both cases, whether Mark's gospel or Matthew's, good is centered in Jesus alone. Be careful how you talk about how good you are. Be careful about how often you talk about good things. My friends, there's only one who is good. And unless you have that good one, that good person, which is Jesus himself, You have nothing in you that's good.
1: My friends, we are depraved people. We are broken people. The darkness goes down deeper than we even know. There is no one good but God. And unless you have the good that is Jesus himself,
0: then you cannot have eternal life. Despite the man's confusion concerning good, Jesus answers his question, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, the man, he's, it says he's a young man, so maybe he's a little dumb. But he asks the next question, which ones? All of them, right? And Jesus basically goes through all of them. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then you can kind
1: of hear the pride in the man's words. All these I have kept. What do I still lack? When he looks at his life,
0: the man cannot discern any flaw in himself.
1: I wish I could say that I didn't know what that was like. Man, I see your flaws plainly. What do I still lack? Friends, it's hard to grade your own paper. When this man grades his own paper, he gets an A++.
0: But the problem is, is life shows us we don't grade our own paper. There is a divine grader. He thinks he likes nothing, and... So so we got to see that from the very beginning, just by his mindset, this man is grading his paper over generously. He doesn't see any deficiency, no flaw. Everything he has done can be justified. He is basically a good person. He has basically kept all the law. So there's more work to be done here if Jesus is to show this man what he really needs for eternal life. If you would be perfect, which is... If you're going to get into heaven on your own, you must be perfect. And I don't know anyone that's ready to confess that and say that they are. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then here comes what the man's actually lacking. Come and follow me. That's that that last command is the most important of all this. It's not really about how much the man has. It's about what he doesn't have. That's the problem. What am I still lacking? He lacks nothing in this world, but he lacks everything because he doesn't have Jesus. If you want to be perfect, in other words, if you don't want to be lacking in anything, if you want to be complete, You must have Jesus, which means that you have to empty your hands that are full of all your stuff, your reputation, your career, your public image. You have to empty your hands to cling to Jesus. My friends, there's so many of us that are grasping our stuff, grasping our view of self, grasping our reputation, our career, our power, our position, our political views, our whatever. And at the same time, trying to use
1: a pinky to cling to Jesus. You have to drop it and cling. That's what the man needs. His hands are too full for Jesus. Jesus. His hands are too full for Jesus. He's got too much stuff. my friends. I've got to ask you, are your hands too full for Jesus?
0: I mean, Jesus is a nice thought, isn't he? It's nice when you can just live in proximity to him. But what do you do when you find out that everything your hands hold dear might have to
1: be dropped in order to cling to him? What if clinging to Jesus means giving up comfort?
0: What if clinging to Jesus might mean following him to the margins of
1: society? What if clinging to Jesus might mean that you have to make a painful confession? As embarrassing
0: as it might be, as ashamed you might feel, what if following
1: Jesus means you drop all of that? Here's the tragic decision. When the young man heard
0: this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let me just put that to you. If I were to translate this, here's what I'd simply say. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had a
1: lot, he had a lot of junk. He had a lot of stuff. He loved. He thought back on what he had, and he't give that up. My friends, we, we, we talk about talk when we say that we'd follow Jesus anywhere. We talk a
0: bold talk when we say that we would carry our cross anywhere, but then when it actually looks like following Jesus and we began counting the cost, sometimes we're like, we can't give that up. Okay, I know that he said, leave it all behind unless you're willing to leave father, mother, brother, sister, whatever, unless you're willing to become homeless like Jesus, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his nest. We, 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 we know all of that. We know that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And we know that he's told people, unless you're willing to follow him in that even, you're not worthy of him. And yet, when he gives us
1: just the subtlest sacrifices, boy, do we put up a stink. My friends... My question here to all of us is what are our hands holding on to? And is it keeping you from clinging to Christ? That's one thing about the children is when they came, they came with empty hands. If you hold on to your obsessions, your career, your addictions, your comfort, your well-offness and fail to humbly repent, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't like to preach anyone into heaven and I don't like to tell someone that they're
0: not going to heaven based on unbiblical grounds, but here's what you need to know. Without humble acceptance of Jesus, without humble repentance, you are
1: not a Christian and you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Simple fact. Humility is not a nicety. Can we we just... We, we, we hate arrogant
0: people, we naturally just kind of, yeah, arrogant, but we don't see it as dangerous as it really is, right? Arrogance is not just some kind of character defect in you. Self-sufficiency is not some kind of character defect. Your self-gratification is not just a minor flaw. Your self-ambition, your prideful comparison, your envy... Your covetousness, all those things that are based in pride are not just mere minor sins. They are things that will keep you out of heaven because you must humble yourself.
1: And humility means leaving all those things behind. My friend, self sufficiency, self gratification, self
0: exaltation, self ambition, prideful comparison, self centeredness, all that is adultish
1: character. And it makes you too tall to enter the doorway of the kingdom. This is the proper position to get into the kingdom, it's to bow. After watching the young man walk away sad,
0: Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Admittedly, this is a really hard statement. What does he mean by rich? Does it mean that if you make more than I do, because I'm not rich, If you make more than I do, then good luck entering into the kingdom of God. Don't give me a pay raise because I feel quite confident I can enter in. Is that what that means? It has nothing to do with how much you have or about your bank account or what's in your bank account. If you study poor and rich, you do a word study of of, of poor and rich throughout Scripture, it has everything to do with a heart disposition, right? For example, Barnabas was rich. We know that. There are wealthy, godly people— that there is an attitude that comes along with being wealthy in that sense that comes with self-sufficiency, power, self-exaltation, all these things that, I I mean, I'll just be honest with you, most poor people don't have a problem understanding dependence. Rich people do. So while it has nothing to do with how much is in your bank account, it does have to do with... How much you understand you are dependent on Jesus. It has everything to uh, to, to, to do with how weak and lowly you see yourself. If you see yourself as, I can get whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. I can buy whatever I want. I don't need anyone's help. You're rich. In Matthew's terms. And you will find it very difficult to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, with that kind of disposition that says, I don't need anything, that says, I don't, need to, I don't need to come to Jesus like that. I don't need to humble myself. It's easier for you to take one of those little needles and a tiny little eye in that needle and to make a Middle Eastern camel go through that. Can you do that? The answer is no, that's impossible. Jesus says it would be easier for that to happen than for someone who's self-sufficient, self-exalted, powerful, who doesn't see themselves as weak and in need to enter into the kingdom. Has everything to do with your heart. The bigger you think you are, the more founded you think you are, the harder it will be for you to fit into that tiny door into the kingdom. It's short. You have to bow. It's narrow. You have to come empty. That's the reality. I think it's worth being warned. I don't think you should. I'm not. An application in today's sermon is not, hey, if you have a car, then you should feel really guilty about that. That's not the application in today's sermon. But if you do have a heart that basically says, I'm glad Jesus is here for all these other people, but I kind of have what I need. You don't see eternal life as anything different than the, young, the rich young man did. The rich young man saw eternal life as another thing to add on to the pile of possessions. You see? It wasn't something that he had to give up the pile of possessions to have. In his mind, he comes to Jesus just wanting to know, I have it all. Uh, Jesus, tell me how I can have this one more thing just to add on top of the pile of possessions. My friends, if Jesus is that to you, a nice little cherry on top of your life that basically makes you a good person and basically means that you might, because of your basic morality and basic goodness, might get into heaven, you do not see eternal life rightly. Jesus is not the cherry on top. He's not just another thing to add on top of the pile. I have money, I have power, I have prestige, I have position, I have my career, oh, and I have Jesus. That's not the way to view Jesus. You either have Jesus, or you have nothing. And Paul says, everything else is to be compared as nothing when it comes to having Jesus. My friends, there's so many of us that would rather have all these things We're trying to get camels through the eyes of needles and we're forgetting that it's better just to humble. It's better just to change our heart disposition, to pray that God will change the way we view ourselves. But the problem is is we're intoxicated with the wine of comfort, power, and self-sufficiency. We're intoxicated by it. We don't want to be pushed around any more than anybody else wants to be pushed around. I mean, we live in this deep American culture of, you know, if you don't push, you will be walked
1: on. My friends, that's not the kingdom mindset. The kingdom mindset is a mindset of being a servant, of being a child. Now, naturally, this was a struggle
0: for the disciples because rich people were favored by God in the New Testament. I mean, in the New Testament world. If anybody is going to get into heaven, it's rich people. I mean, they're, they're looking back at history and they're thinking, okay, according to Israelite culture at the time... To be rich means that you have the special favor of God. And so here comes their question. If the rich can't enter into the kingdom of God so easily, who then can be saved? That's a valid question. If the powerful, the strong, the tall, the broad-shouldered, the warriors, the presidents, the kings... The wealthy in society of all the top tier people are going to find it difficult to enter into the kingdom of God because they have a greater humbling to do than who can be saved. Jesus says, With man, it's impossible. My friends, you cannot humble yourself enough without God. With man, these things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You might be someone in here that is struggling with pride. You just don't know how to leave it. So inherent, you've lived with it so long, you've drunk from that wine of comfort and power and self-exaltation, self-sufficiency. You've played with your toys and you've got your possessions, you've got your stuff, and you just don't know how to get off the wine that you're addicted to of all that comfort and self-sufficiency. With you, it's impossible but with God, all things are possible. To pray and ask God to humble your heart, to teach you your need for him, I guarantee you that's a prayer that God will answer pretty immediately. At least you'll begin feeling things in your life, seeing things in your life happen that are gonna move you to some sort of dependence. Be careful praying that prayer. Just <laughs> But if you truly do see that you have a trouble seeing your
1: deep need for Jesus, God can help you out with that. Jesus makes it worth it, though. Access to the kingdom comes through humble faith.
0: Okay, if it doesn't come by humble faith, it doesn't come at all. Jesus calls himself the gate, but he promises this. If you humble yourself and you come to him and you stoop, you put down all the power and the prestige and the positions, and you you let loose your idolatrous hold on all those things, I don't know if they'll make you give it up permanently or not. I'm not saying that Jesus is going to make you quit your job. But I am saying if you're holding on to that more than him, he, he's going to ask you to drop it before coming in the door. If you do humble yourself and you do drop it, Jesus says this, the one who does so will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. My friends,
1: one of the, one of the greatest thoughts Is that Jesus brings us to rest. You have all this stuff in your
0: life. You may be pursuing power, prestige, self-exaltation, a
1: reputation, whatever it is. And it doesn't bring you rest. But Jesus does. He
0: opens up the door and he gives you green pastures. You can lie down. You can find sleep. You can rest, and be restored in Christ. So how do you humble yourself? Very quickly, I've got four thoughts for you. First, know your need for Jesus. No, I didn't say know why you should have Jesus, not why you should be a Christian. Just know your need for Jesus. The children came with that acknowledged need, and so should we. Second, accept your insufficiency and helplessness. You are more broken than you know. You are weaker than you know. You can try as you might to fool yourself into thinking that you are strong enough to do whatever it is you want to do and you will find that you are not. It is better to live in the simple confession of broken weakness than to live in the false hope of competence. Third, you have to assess what it is that you truly love. Jesus pressed the point. He wasn't going to give... The man, he knew the man's real problem. The man wasn't that he lacked any kind of morality. He had plenty of morality. It wasn't that the man didn't have plenty of uh, stuff. The problem was he didn't have Jesus. And Jesus wanted to make it very clear that he was going to have to choose which one he loved more. And Jesus says plain throughout Scripture, unless you love me more than you love father, mother, brother, sister, then you are not worthy of me. A hard teaching. But we have to daily assess what we love more. Do we love our stuff? Do we love our prestige? Do we love our power, our comfort, our pleasures, our gratifications? Or do we humbly love Jesus? And sometimes you have to do what it takes to fall in love with Jesus afresh. Otherwise, that love can grow cold. Fourth and finally, remind yourself daily that Jesus is enough. My friends, Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth. He died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again so that that intercessory laying on hands on could be given to us permanently in Jesus so that he could be our perfect high priest, the one who brings us into the presence of God. We make ourselves low and his resurrected all-powerful hand extends to us. We humble ourselves and the great high king who has all power in heaven and earth lowers his hands not to the ones who are tall, not to the ones who are big, not to the ones that are high, but
1: to the lowly and the humble. And that's who the king's hands move towards.
0: Jesus is enough. So my friends, the clear message of this passage is that we must humble ourselves in coming to Jesus. It is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of heaven on your own with whatever it is that you have. It won't buy you a ticket in the door. It won't make the door wider. Jesus won't make the door taller for you. The door is the size that it is. And it's the size of a child. And if you are to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must humble yourself. Become like a child. Repent. Adults are too tall to enter into the door
1: of humility. But children are the perfect size. Pray. Father God, we just lift up to you our hearts. Adults, though we may be,
0: though sufficient in life, though we may be, I pray that you will humble us to see just how childlike we must be.
1: Call us to humility and repentance. Call us to dependence in you. We pray this in your son's name.